will caution from the one song. I won't object to the one song that we sang as a congregation before this service, but when you read the words pleading, make sure you understand he is an absolutely sovereign God with absolute authority, and he's not pleading with your soul. Uh, he's pleading your case before God, but he is not begging, knocking, asking, or waiting on you to receive him. I just want to make sure that we hear that. Because some of these songs, though the writer had no intention of such confusion, uh, can certainly be taken that way. So do just keep that in mind in your heart. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We do, this is the conclusion of the original eight sermons on the attributes of God. I do believe that the Lord will have us to do more. I have uh, quite a few outlines sketched out, but nothing done yet. So I, I can't say for certain this is where we're going to be next Sunday. Uh, but it will be the focus of my week to see what's next. We want to look today at the punishment of God. And maybe want to look at that is not the right way of phrasing it, but we're, we're Lord willing, going to be discussing the punishment of God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 says, And I saw a great white throne. And this is, of course, the Apostle John who is writing of the Revelation. And while I'm on that subject, it's just one. One revelation that the Lord Jesus gave to John, and that's probably more of a pet peeve than the whole pleading thing, but uh, he didn't receive revelations, he received one dream. And he's writing here, the great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. This again speaks to the authority and the command that Jesus Christ has been given and trusted with from God the Father over all things. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. In them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let us have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach this most difficult subject, I pray, Father, that we indeed have cleared our hearts and minds of distractions, of worldly concerns, that, Lord, it would be your words and your voice heard here and not mine, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us application, that our walk would be changed in adherence to your word. We're thankful, Father, for the Sunday School lesson this morning, and I pray that each member here does count it a blessing that you've led us through so many studies in the last two years of seemingly chronological importance, that we not only have been looking at the beginning and also at the end, but also your, uh, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in a chronological order as well, Lord, and we just pray, Father, that that's not lost on us, that that's, that gift of study, whether we were here for it or not, would not go uh, unattended to. We thank you, Father, for those that are here. We ask your blessings and mercy upon those who are absent. Uh, certainly, we've, we've gone over those details, and you know their need, and we just ask your mercy upon them. We ask also, Father, that you'd be with Justin, who's not been with us for quite some time. That, Father, you'd break his heart over the matter and bring him back at the next appointed time. We ask, Father, these things. We plead your mercy, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We see here... And, and again, we, we open up with a note on a hymn talking about the authority of God. And I want to bring your attention to one sentence in this text that I, I, I read at the same pace, but I didn't really stop and bring a lot of attention to. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is not merely a God that is God over the living. 
And this is not merely a, a, a white throne for which just those written in a book. Sorry, my glasses are, are filthy. Didn't know that till I got under the light. This is not merely a God who is attending to those who are in the book of life. All who have ever lived, the sea is literally spewing out the dead from within it, are coming before the Lord Jesus Christ at this future great white throne judgment. And not just them, but death itself shall perish at the conclusion of this day. As we look here at the punishment of God, I'm not talking about his chastening rod. I'm not talking about the crook of correction as we walk through this world. I am talking about what is coming at the end for everyone in this room and everyone who's ever been in this room, everyone who ever tilled the ground where this room was built, anyone who has ever lived upon the face of this earth shall come before God. And they won't plead the case of their pastor. They won't plead the case of good intentions. The books will be opened. Their works will judge them. Your works will judge you. This is not your works will earn salvation. Your works will reveal the truth of salvation in you, for you. And you will be judged accordingly. This is the, the pleading of the gospel itself, the pleading of all preaching. Not that you would adhere to my word, not that you would give in to my opinion or my sway, but that you'd be saved. Because this day most assuredly is coming. All things, as Steve pointed out this morning, in chronological order, this is coming. In the order that it has been revealed to John, it is absolutely coming. Maybe it's not my glasses. My goodness. It is absolutely a date for which all will attend. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17 says, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. This is a declaration. It shall come to pass, for there is a time. Therefore, every purpose and for every work, all of these things being accumulated in the great book of Eddie, the great book of Isaac, the great book of Job, and revealed in those last days. Psalm, the fifth Psalm, verses four through six says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing or lies. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. At this point in history, Every last mortal who has died will have been raised from the dead. Death itself and the place of dead, Hades, are emptied out. And I don't think there's anything wrong with you picturing it as, as a laundry basket just being dumped forth in front of the great white throne. There'll be nothing remaining, nothing hidden, nothing concealed, all poured out in front of God himself. I don't think that it's correct for us to think of judgment in any other manner because the Lord sees all, knows all. All is not, not merely revealed to him. It was never concealed from him to begin with. There's nothing to be revealed for he already knows it. This then must be the time to which Paul looked forward when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed, death 
itself. All without exception are to be raised and stand before God. For me, it's hard at times to prepare a sermon on the subject of his wrath. And maybe that's hard to believe because it's one of those subjects I get pretty loud about and get pretty, pretty fueled about. And it's not difficult because I don't believe it. It's difficult because I tell people, maybe you tell people, and you see their lack of concern. You see their lack of preparedness. You see their, possibly their judgment, their mockery, that it's such a concern for you. And that makes it hard because not only you're pleading for them, but you recall that in your own members. You think maybe of your testimony before your children, before you were saved, or before you were walking right. And you see it reflected back to you. The naivety, the immaturity, the, the lack of concern for the things of this book that are perpetuated by a world that could care less, a world built uh, on a very foundation of sinfulness, of uh, sensual pleasures and uh, immediate impact, immediate fulfillment, immediate discard. That's the way of this world. God is not ashamed, however, to make it known that vengeance and fury belong to him. Deuteronomy 32, verses 39 and 40 through 43 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I uh, wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and that the blood of the slain and, the captive, and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy rejoice, O ye nations." with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Arthur Pink wrote, There are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. You wouldn't know that this time of year, but it's absolutely true. His wrath is perfect. His wrath is without blemish just as his other divine traits and attributes. Indifference towards sin, beloved, is a moral blemish. It's not one he has, but it's one that we have. It may be found in us at times, but it will not ever be found in him. When we think of this day of judgment, and we read here, uh, honestly, in Deuteronomy, where he says that for us to, uh, to rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will revenge the blood of his servants. I don't believe this white throne judgment will be a day of rejoicing. Uh, even if it goes well for you. Uh, I mean, could you imagine the somber setting for which all lives are lined up? I mean, I, I'm not going to go through a laundry list, but uh, the likes of John Wilkes Booth, Adolf Hitler, Steve Kaiser, all standing in line at the great white throne judgment, none exempt. None are high-fiving on this day. None are whooping it up that they found pleasure in the eyes of the Lord. There will be those that have that relief, but this won't be a setting for it. There are two points that I have to this message. 
as we look at the punishment of God, we want to consider the punishment of God concerning the church and the punishment of God. Got everything working against me up here. In relation to justice and judgment in all of creation. Just two points. The first concerning the church. The wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character upon which we need to frequently meditate. Uh, as providence would have it, it's easier said as Steve said this morning. God is allowing for us to see what sin has done. God is allowing for us to see what sin has done. There are those who won't know the Lord who have no concern over what sin has done. They're riding that roller coaster. They enjoy that roller coaster. They get off and get back in line to go through it again. But those who have re been redeemed, those who uh, have been set free by the truth, where we acknowledge that we see the devastation that sin has done. Do we not? Concerning the church, it causes for us to truly consider how God detests sin compared to how we feel about it. As I had mentioned in the opening, the reflection of those who we pray for, who we witness to, and some of them in their lack of concern for what we're saying. Pink wrote, we are ever prone to regard sin lightly. Even those who are saved, sadly, regard a lot of sin lightly. To gloss over its hideousness, to make excuse for it. God, though, in his word reveals that he abhors it. He abhors it. This means, according to Strong's definition, he has horror over it. And how it's used in, there in Romans 12, verse 9. God has horror over sin. This is one who knows no sin. One who could know no sin. One who's never experienced sin. He has absolute horror over it. Does this mean God fears it? No. This means God will judge it as that righteous fire we talked about until nothing remains. It's a big deal. What God abhors, we should find truly heinous. We shouldn't take it lightly. We could, shouldn't consider it just, a, uh, just something that we'll have to pray over. Why would we plead with sinners and then say, well, it, it's just something that is going to have to settle. This is a difficult time of year for me, as I mentioned on Wednesday. I don't do Christmas. And if you bring it up to me before I preach, I'll end up preaching about Christmas. But here's why it's difficult. My father paints his beard gray and dresses as Santa now. Didn't before I started preaching and went against Christmas. My brother, this is now his favorite time of year. Now, he always enjoyed it before, but he wasn't a parade goer until just this year. Every conversation I have with my family this time of year is promoting this wickedness. And you have opinions on it. We can talk afterwards. If you talk to me now, we're going to end up on a Christmas sermon in this. I got that for the end of the year. But you need to understand, and, and, and maybe I need to understand as well, if, the God, if God hasn't revealed unto you this thing, you won't have the passion that I have over it. Likewise, if he's revealed it unto me, I have to pursue it with the utmost passion that I have within myself. Because God has revealed it unto me in multiple places of Scripture that the things tied to this holiday are evil. And therefore, I must find it heinous if I believe he has horror over it. And whatever sin you might want to fill into that blank, whether it's adultery or murder, if God finds it to be uh, abhorring, if he has horror over it, then I should also find it to be truly heinous. Abortion, for example. I shouldn't give others a pass for abortion. 
God finds it truly heinous. I need to go tell them about this. Now, I, I'm not venging uh, upon them. I'm not seeking revenge, but I need to make sure they know God finds this to be truly heinous. Brother, they might not agree with you. I can't, not just because of my calling, but because of my salvation, go to bed at night and say, because they might be offended, I shouldn't tell them about sin. I shouldn't tell them about this judgment. I shouldn't tell them about a God who abhors sin. No, beloved. I can't for your sakes, for their sakes, for my sake. I can't act as though sin is some light thing. And you shouldn't either. The second thing we see as churchgoers concerning the punishment of God should cause for us to fear his wrath. Yes, the born again will be free of his wrath, but in our knowledge of it, we should be driven to witness even more fervently than we were before. He's coming. This day, this hour of judgment is coming. There'll be nothing to plead. We've said it before. The only thing that they could, that any of us could possibly plead is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they don't know him, they will not be able to. He will say, depart from me. I never knew thee. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul says. Psalm 19.9 The fear of the Lord is clean or pure, enduring forever. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29 and I believe Steve made reference to this this morning. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, He's talking about the born again. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Reverence is, sometimes we say reverence is godly fear. Here it's used as two different things. So let's define reverence a little more deeply. The word literally means a tinge of awe. So let us serve God acceptably with a tinge of awe, knowing who he is that great and terrible king for which we are king, uh, cupbearers to, and with godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, how many have been Baptists for so long that the phrase consuming fire doesn't faze you? I understand. You're not going to raise your hand in here. But as the kids and I looked over the, the New River Gorge, I found myself saying a couple weeks back, man, a person could just live here. And then I started thinking, I lived in Denver for two years. And there at the end, I took those mountains for granted. And a person could say, I'd like to live in the New River Gorge and see this every day, never get tired of it. But we do. Our sensibilities dull faster than most kitchen knives. It's there. It's there. It's there. It's always there. It's there. It's there. Why, why can't I take it for granted? It's there. It's been there every day. Well, what Steve say today? Heaven's rolled up as a scroll. I love the way you put that, because that's kind of how all these prophecies are, are they not? It's already been decreed. God doesn't hold it out and say, i got to wait until Isaac believes this one. No, it's written. It's decreed. It's rolled up. It's put back on the shelf. The Lord shall come, redeem the elect, rise again, rolled up, put it on the scroll. It doesn't, he's not waiting for you to believe. He's not waiting for you to invite, not waiting for the mourner's bench, not waiting for you to recite some prayer that some wise preacher wrote. It's rolled up because it's already true, and it's put upon the shelf with other true prophecies 
that have either been fulfilled or as with the rapture waiting to be fulfilled. Do we serve God acceptably with a tinge of awe and godly fear? Do we recognize that consuming fire leaves nothing behind? It consumes it by definition. And God is in full control of it. As a consuming fire, he was allowed to speak from a bush that was not consumed. Some will say, well, you're wrong then. No, this is a consuming fire. This is a consuming fire. The ground for which it was burning upon and above was considered holy. This fire likely would have consumed anything Moses tried to toss into it. But it did not consume the bush. Why? Because God said so. God forbade it. His consuming fireness, if you'll allow me to use the phrase, will not consume us. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't serve him with a tinge of awe and godly fear. We deserve to be consumed. We deserve to be cast into this lake with death itself. Shouldn't it drive our witnessing to tell others about this gospel? To tell others about this consuming fire from which there is only one deliverance? Thirdly and lastly, it should greatly influence how we fervently praise him for our own deliverance. We just had Thanksgiving a week ago. This knowledge of the punishment of God, of him as a consuming fire, it should most definitely influence how we praise him for delivering us, how we praise him for the blessings of new life and for all the other blessings we experience throughout this world. He has displayed mercy to an undeserving race over and over and over again only because he wants to, only for his own holy name. Should we not give thanks and praise to one who has done such things and we have no influence over him doing them? Psalm 5, 7, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward the holy temple. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Even Jesus, which, did, uh, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Are we not thankful for this? He delivered us from that consuming fire. We were as on a conveyor belt, where at the end was the hottest of ovens, cranked up to the nth degree, turning up even hotter. Put them Hebrew children on there, put Ernie on there, put Joe on there, and send them down to shoot. Bound as Isaac, we were as dead men. Nothing we could do to stop the belt. Nothing we could do to cool the flame. Oh, but we would have a drop of water. But our fate is that burning flame. And for some reason, for his own name's sake, he delivered some off that belt. Not because they were more appealing. Not because they were loud and squealing. Not because they uttered the right words, sang the right song. Not because they squirmed around and got on their knees. He has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. That is the application of his mercy, and he is the only source of said mercy. Can the clay question the potter? James Oliver Buswell, who we quoted last Sunday, also wrote, The wrath of God is not toward the church, 
By the blood of Christ we shall be saved through him from wrath, Romans 5, 9. It is the lot of the church to await his son from heaven, whom he hath whom he has raised from among the dead, Jesus, the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, which we just read, Matthew 3.7, Luke 3.7. God has not appointed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Very important how Paul wrote that. It doesn't say God has not created us for wrath. It says appointed. He knew before the foundation of the world who he would elect, and yet the process had to go through it. The plan had to be fulfilled. We weren't created unto, we were appointed unto. The second and final point concerning the judgment or, or the punishment of God is justice and judgment in all creation. To truly address this point, we must settle on the fact that we have never seen true justice among men. I don't think that's going to be one I really have to work too hard to prove, uh, given the last two elections, given uh, most court cases that end up being televised these days. It is typically imperfect and almost always partial. Uh, how did it go in the 90s? If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit, uh, referencing the O.J. Simpson trial. And I'm sure we have opinions, but even our opinions don't dictate the truth. It is typically imperfect, man's judgment. Almost always partial. Why would I bring this out? Because we can't use that as a type for what God's judgment and justice is like. We can't use what we understand from the American judicial system, and really never in the history of the American judicial system has it been a perfect picture of what God's justice and judgment will be like. In our judgment system, in most settings, the defender has the right to an attorney and has a right to plead his case. You don't have that right in the justice and judgment of God. Now, if you've been appointed one, if we want to use such terms, that would have to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the judge, lawgiver, and savior, and he's the only one who could defend your case. You might be the best and the fastest talker here. You will utter nothing there. In this perfect justice and judgment system, he already knows all. There is no need for you to speak. No need for you to plead your case. No need for you to make an argument on your behalf because there's no jury to persuade. There's a God who simply knows the truth, and there is his judgment, which is absolute justice. Psalm 9, verse 8, And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Psalm 19, verse 9, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It cannot be contested. There is no appellate court system above God for which you can appeal to and survive in limited freedom for a few more months until you appear before. This is it. At the conclusion of this judgment, death itself perishes. This is it. Your one hope is Jesus. Your one judge is Jesus. And there's only two possible uh, sentences. Eternal living, eternal dying. This is kind of a big deal. I don't want you to, for, a, for a minute to think that I'm making light of this here today, beloved. 
And I'm not pushing for you to make a decision. If you're here and you're saved, I'm pushing because you have to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why we're still here. It is what we've been commissioned to do. If you're here and you're lost, it is absolutely and utterly hopeless. Oh, I know. There's no popular preacher that would say that these days. I'm no popular preacher. You're in luck. You're without hope without Christ. Moms, dads, if your children are lost, they're without hope without Jesus Christ. Shouldn't you ought to tell them about them? Shouldn't you ought to demonstrate what you know about them? Shouldn't they see you studying scripture, attending church? Shouldn't it appear to be a big deal to you and to them that you were saved and now attend to the teaching of his word? Psalm 89, verse 14, justice and judgment are the habitation. And this word truly rendered means basis or foundation. Justice and judgment are the foundation, the basis, the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Brother Milburn wrote, by justice, the attribute of God, by which he does everyone right, by judgments, the impartial exercise of the attribute of justice in the divine government, by which punishes sinners. Perfect justice, perfect judgment. None are punished that have not violated the law, and all have violated his law. 1 John 3, 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. <coughs> What's Romans 3.23 say? We should have that memorized by now. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All that are dead in the seas right now have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All that perished in the air and crashed to the ground. Amelia Earhart, wherever she died. Those who have died in volcanoes, those who have died in earthquakes and avalanches, those who have been swallowed up by tsunamis, those who have not yet died, you have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we will all march before this throne. The judgment or impartial exercise of justice is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Only those who are seen without sin shall escape the justified wrath of God and live eternally. They cannot earn it. It can only be received. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isaiah 33:22, which we've used throughout this study. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. We see justice and judgment in that very verse that we've been reciting for two months. Romans 3, verses 24 through 26, being justified freely. Freely, unearned. Unearned. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a payment, a propitiation, an atonement through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Up to this point, he has defined for us the source of justification. He's already said it's given freely by grace, which is essentially the same thing. Freely by freeness. That's how salvation comes. Freely by freeness. He paid it. He suffered it. 
He sent it back. He sealed it. He confirmed it. He stands for it. But as far as we're concerned, elective God, it was given freely by freeness, a gift of grace, this justification that is absolutely required. Abraham up to Genesis 21, different from Abraham in Genesis 23 going forward. Why? As we saw last week, he's justified. His faith in God justified him in taking his son to the top of Mount Moriah as instructed, rising up early, trusting in God, preparing for God, applicating what God had given for him to do. He was therefore justified freely by freeness. Think of it this way. Three days before going to Mount Moriah, Isaac was said to be dead. He's going to die. It's required that he dies. And we're not told of a single drop of his own blood that was poured forth. And the only way he could have bled is if his leg caught on a pricky thorny bush, which is a result of our sin, on the way up there, or if the rope was tied so tightly that maybe his wrist wore open a wound. That blade never touched him. That flame never consumed him. He was delivered freely. It might be hard for us to conceive, but if you were Isaac in that situation, there'd have been no doubt in your mind when that ram was revealed in the thicket that he was freely justified by grace. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. I love that verse. It might be the, the most fun verse to preach. To declare, I say at this time, Jesus Christ's righteousness. What do we do this in remembrance of when we do the Lord's Supper? His righteousness, his sacrifice. When we weep over Genesis 22, when we weep over the repentance of the Ninevites, we are declaring, I say at this time, his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. I encourage you. I implore you. I beg of you. Study these things and know them to be true. What good is a pastor that begs? I can't force you. And I, and I try my darndest to not guilt you. But you are required. It is your reasonable service. Die unto this world. Bury your cross and follow after him. And if you don't, you're not worthy to be called his disciple. That's his words. How dare we say we love him and then ignore this house? How dare we say we love him, that we are Christians, and then dance around with the heathens? And that's more than Christmas. How dare we say he's the most important thing in our lives? and put everything else first. Even for a moment, he's God of all time, for all time. Even for a moment, these precious little dirt bags should not be more important than God. Even for a moment, your lovely wife, your devoted husband, should not be more important than God. He sent them. He granted these lives. As for the loss to, oh, I'm jumping ahead. You will have no time beyond this life to do so. There's no purgatory. 
There's no re reincarnation to try again. The redeemed who possess eternal life are seen as perfect through Christ Jesus. They have his, this possession of salvation. In this life, they have the joy that he pronounces. In this life, oh, preachers jumped all over us for the work we have to do, and you can do it with joy. You can do it with a smile because it's secure in him. I don't know how those who believe it can be lost could ever smile walking on pins and needles and broken glass in a world on fire every day, hoping the day concludes or their last breath is not breathed before they've gotten it right once more. You can smile, beloved, because the truth of this book is it's secure in him. It cannot be lost. You will not face punishment tomorrow because you got lost tonight. If you're saved, you're always saved. If you're secure, you're always secure, or by definition, you were never secure. They now await the resurrection in the judgment of rewards. Luke 14, 14, and thou, and in the context here of this Luke 14, for time's sake, we can't read the whole thing, but in context, Jesus is speaking here to the bidden or the called and elect, and he says, and thou shalt be blessed, the elect. The bidden, the called, shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. As for the lost who have not God's grace in this life, there is not the slightest ray of hope for their salvation, nor hope that they, being guilty of eternal sin, will find a space of repentance after death. That's hard. If I conclude the sermon here, they'll likely call a new pastor. But it's true. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Oh, preacher, give us hope. Tell us what we can do. You can do nothing. Tell us what we can say. Tell us what we can offer. Tell us whose feet to kiss. Who to bribe. You can do nothing. If you're here and you're lost, you should be weeping openly. Because no saved person in this room can give you what they have. And if he comes today, you won't have it. Lest he give it to you. Lest he reveals unto you that you are indeed one of the elect and you are saved. We ought not miss a single word. We ought not miss a single opportunity that this might be the day. 2 Corinthians 6.2, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We see nothing in Scripture that says to plan to be saved later. We see nothing in Scripture that says plan to do good works later. Plan to give the gospel later. Very few times do we see where the disciples sleep. But we're sleeping pretty good. And we make plans to do all these things another time, more convenient season. The only time we see those phrases is somebody lost saying it, not somebody saved. Paul made plans, and God directed. Paul later has desires. Let me go in under here. But God directed. Paul's writing says, if it be his will, and there you go, if it be his will, you will continue to give the gospel tomorrow. Don't stop doing it today. This could be it. This right now could be it. 
Anyone in here ever played a trumpet or a horn? I know Clark has. You got to get your lips ready to, to use that spit thing. The trumpeter might be doing that right now. Might be exercising those lip muscles, getting ready to blow the trumpet. The skies could be a preparant to roll back as a scroll. The gown, if there's an appointed gown for the Lord to wear as he meets us in the air, it could be getting pressed and steamed at this very moment. It could be that he's already got it on, that he just stepped out of the chambers, that he's stepping into the clouds as we speak, ready to part them. These aren't eloquent turns of phrase. This is absolutely true. There's nothing we're waiting on. There is no other momentous occasion that Scripture says has to happen first. He could simply come. He will simply come as a thief in the night. That's how thieves come. They simply come. They don't write you a letter and say, I'm coming next week. Get ready. Don't be there. I don't want to be violent. Thieves just come. And they happen upon us suddenly. And they catch some unawares. That ought not be the case for a born-again believer. You ought to be aware every day. Every day, this could be it. Every day, this could be the hour. Purgatory is a lie of the devil. It's sustained and perpetuated by the harlots of Rome, by Rome herself, giving a false hope that there's a lot of time left. This same Rome loves Halloween. This same Rome. Oh, she loves Christmas. This same Rome doesn't care about the leaven. Should you continue to follow her? If these gods be real, Elijah says, follow after them. But if they're not real, you should follow after God. You should forsake all else and follow after God. It, purgatory, along with all other heresies, shall thankfully perish along with death and hell, burning off as all our imperfections, burning off in the light and truth of our all-holy God. He's all-holy. He will only dwell in the presence of all holiness. This almost Christianity, it's poisonous, it's toxic. This almost thereness of the world, the secular humanism that claims to have any appearance that is familiar with Christ is absolute lies. And it's comforting similarities is only there for your, uh, your appreciation. It's only there to please you. Our absolutely holy God created a creation for which was also holy and very good. It fell with Adam. As God plans to purify it once more, his holy character dictates a holy creation once more. And he will be hostile. Hear me now. He will be hostile to all things in violation of his holiness. Don't believe it? Read through the scriptures. It's always been the case. What happened to Aaron's sons? that decided to burn strange fire. 
They decided to do things their way at a time they weren't appointed to do it. And what happened to them? Oh, God sent Aaron in there, and Aaron took the boys out in both hands, gave them a stern lecture in two in front of the congregation so everybody knew what they did was wrong, and then set them in the back pew where they lived in shame the rest of their lives. No, that's what Baptists do. What God did was burn them up, gone. And the, we don't read where Aaron and Moses go and say, here lie the ashes of your sons. They were utterly consumed by a consuming, all-jealous God who will not hesitate to be hostile towards anything that violates his holiness. That's why he keeps saying, be ye holy, for I am holy. You're going to be with me, you've got to be holy. You're going to be with me, you have to understand holiness. You're going to be with me, you have to listen, he says. I used to hate it when my parents said, you have to listen. When she does it to the kids, I hate it too. Because we naturally hate it. We hate knowing we're not perfect. We hate knowing we don't have all the answers. Get over it. You don't. He will absolutely be hostile to all things in violation of his holiness, and he always has been hostile to everything in violation of his holiness. What happened at the flood? The world went swimming for a while. Everything was utterly destroyed except what was in the ark. Utterly destroyed. Makes you look a little differently at the ark music boxes, right? Because it's not a bunch of animals smiling on the rooftop of the ark. There's only one window and one door. That is all wrong. And it wasn't some joyful cruise. This wasn't the carnival's first voyage. This was an ark of salvation. And only what was inside when God sealed the door. And only what was in was what was called. Only what was in there was saved. Everything outside perished. When we went through that study, I tried to paint as vivid of a picture as I could. Imagine the smell. Remember? Everything outside the ark was death. Was killed utterly. Anything that was living, dead. Horses. Y'all love horses. They weren't in the ark. They were dead. Dinosaurs, dead. Human beings, dead dead everything outside the ark dead oh surely god wouldn't be hostile against sin he always has been always has been this is evidenced by uh, in our own immune system created by god and how it protects the body what does it do our white blood cells, I believe, I'm not a biologist, but they attack the foreign antibodies. They attack the illness. If Lindsay's sick over yonder right now, her body is violently attacking, hostily attacking that which has got her down. That's what the body's designed by God to do. It's also evidence in how discipline is to exist and be exercised in the Lord's church. There is to be no resemblance of evil in his house. It is to be handled. It is a logical necessity. In the end, we will all know either justice of God and eternal punishment or the grace of God in eternal forgiveness. We will all know God. Isaiah 35, where we started this study, verses 8 through 10 and an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, 
nor any ravenous beast shall go there, go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. For time's sake, I won't be able to read it, but read through Psalm 150 tonight. Read Psalm 145, verses 20 and 21. Consider Luke 12, verse 5, which says, I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Matthew 3, 7, flee from the wrath to come. I know that if you're lost, it's pretty much impossible that your depraved nature is going to bring you to me to ask questions about the Bible. But if you're here and you're lost, you have a loved one who's encouraged you to be here. I encourage you. I implore you. Ask them. Be confrontational. Why'd you bring me here? Be earnest. Why'd you bring me here? What is here for me? Let them tell you about salvation. Let them tell you what the Lord Jesus Christ did for them. How their lives have changed. The reaction and the response to what had been done in them. Go read Acts 9. Read how Saul of Tarsus was Saul of Tarsus no more. How in the same person, the same body, the same response from the church members of fear. This is Saul of Tarsus. How could we teach such an one? How could we be taught by such an one? How could we walk arm in arm in fellowship with such a one? I know that a great change has to take place. And it starts with us sharing the gospel. It starts with us sharing that commission. What it is we've been appointed to do. You're not going to change a single lost person's mind. You're not going to change their heart. Moms, dads, they're going to reject you. They're probably going to yell at you if you push it too hard. Push it too hard. Push it harder. They have to know the truth. Their only hope of salvation is that you tell them about the one who made it possible. <laughs>